I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15 as we continue our life-changing look at Jesus. We're going to begin in Matthew chapter 15 verse 29. We're going to eventually find our way to chapter 16 and verse 4. So if you would... Make your way to Matthew 15 and verse 29. Let's pray and we'll begin. Oh God, as we once again have your most holy word open before us, we pray, oh God, that you would show us Christ that you would meet with us here and now, that you would remove any blindness that prevents us from seeing Christ, any lack of faith that keeps us from seeing clearly. Father, help us to understand the great love with which you have lavished upon us through Jesus. Give us eyes to see. Amen. As you know, Jesus is now in the last year of his life before the crucifixion. A couple of weeks ago, we found him interacting with the scribes and the Pharisees. They, of course, had walked 90 miles to Capernaum from Jerusalem to confront Jesus and his disciples because they weren't following their rules, the tradition of the elders. Jesus responded by calling them hypocrites, by quoting Isaiah 29, 13, telling them that they honored God with their lips, but their hearts were far from them, and he told them that they neglected the word of God for the traditions of men. I imagine that was a rather uncomfortable exchange. Jesus, of course, when he was done talking with the Pharisees and talking with his disciples, he walks 50 miles north to another country. Syrophoenicia, as we learned last week, the modern-day country of Lebanon. That's where we met Jesus last Sunday. That's where we left him in Lebanon, away from those evil, conniving, hypocritical religious leaders. And after Jesus spent time up there in Lebanon, he and his disciples, they returned to northern Israel, and that is where we find Jesus this morning, ministering once again along the shores of the Sea of Galilee. So this brings us to our text, verse 29, and our first point. The short version of the point is business as usual. If you need more detail than that, you could add Jesus returns home and it's business as usual. We find him near home, conducting business as usual. Look at verse 29. 
And Jesus went from there. That's Tyre and Sidon, those cities in Lebanon. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. I have very exciting news for you this morning. I have a new map for you. In the past, we've used my iPad, and I've drawn kind of a lazy J, and we've said that's Israel, remember? Well, this morning, I have the great privilege to show you much greater technology. Are you ready? There you go. <laughs> my hand, your hand. This is the Sea of Galilee. I want everybody to look at their hand. And measure from the top to the bottom. That's 14 miles. And from the, I don't know, the left to the right, the right to the left, that's eight miles. Now, take your other finger and put it right on top of your index finger while you're looking at it. That's Capernaum. That's over our number one finger. You know why? Because this is the number one place we need to know. Capernaum. Capernaum is where Jesus has now moved his ministry headquarters. You remember back in Nazareth, they booted him. They wanted to kill him. So he moves him, his mom, and probably his brothers and sisters, if he's got sisters, moves them to Capernaum. They're living most likely at Peter's house. And this is Jesus' new ministry headquarters. Now, if you just go a little bit over to the right and you land on your pinky, that's Bethsaida. Bethsaida, of course, is where Jesus fed the 5,000 people. If you move down along, I don't know, the side of your hand with your pinky, those are all mountains. And it's there where we found Jesus in Gennesaret. Gennesaret's about halfway down, and that's where Jesus healed the man with the legion of demons. That's where the pigs, after they had the legion of demons put in them, ran off the cliffs and died in the Sea of Galilee. If you follow your hand down a little bit farther to this long thing underneath your hand, known as your arm, that is the sea, no, no, that is the River Jordan. It's not to scale, clearly, but that represents the River Jordan. And if you were to come up along the other shore of the Sea of Galilee, just above your thumb, that is Tiberius, the town that was named after Augustus Tiberius Caesar, the town from which people sailed across the sea to get over to Bethsaida the day after Jesus fed the 5,000. This is our new map. I like to call it a handy map. <laughs> it's so handy, it fits in your pocket, and it goes anywhere you go. From time to time, we'll pull that thing out of our pocket and use it. So Jesus, he's back on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, and most likely he's up here in the northern parts of the sea, probably around Bethsaida. Why is that? Well, let's look at the next verse. Why well, the verse 29 continues actually. It says, And he went up on the mountain and sat down there. What mountain? We don't know. But we know that there are mountains over by Bethsaida, and he spent time over there. So most likely he's over by where he fed the five thousand. 
Verse 30. And the great crowd and great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and they put him at his feet, and he healed them. So that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. And so we find Jesus this morning back in Israel, back near his home stomping grounds, and he is back to business as usual. He's miraculously healing people with severe physical problems. And the mute speak, the cripple are whole, the lame walk, the blind see, and the crowds are amazed. When verse 31 says that the crowd wondered, it isn't as if they were wondering, questioning what was going on. No, they wandered in the sense that they were amazed. They were astonished by what they were seeing Jesus do. For Jesus, it's just another day at the office. He's back home, and it's business as usual. Verse 32 Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion. I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. Church, there's two things that I want to point out to you from verse 32. The first is this. Notice that Jesus is so mesmerizing. His miracles are so incredible that these crowds would rather be with Jesus and starve than be without him and be full. Evidently, these men and women, they have found something that is more satisfying than food. Jesus says, they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. Church, when you begin to see and recognize Jesus as the one who is better than everything in every way, Your problems, like having no food, your problems tend to be less dire. It's not that your problems become less severe. I can't imagine a worse problem than not having anything to eat. (laughs) Especially when your wife's there and it's been three days. When your kids are there and it's been three days. But they are less dire, these severe problems, because you know the one who is bigger and better than the problems that you face. 
I sat with Byron and Phyllis this week as they waited on their daughter to die. Dire circumstance. And yet, as I watched them, I saw them as they demonstrated rock-solid confidence in the one who is better than everything in every way. I watched them trust Jesus in those moments rather than worry. I watched them navigate the most severe trial wrapped in a blanket of peace rather than being pulled by the chains of anxiety. Rather than panic and questioning the doctors and barking orders to the nurses or endless pacing, there were tender touches, soft kisses, as a mom kissed the forehead of the daughter she once held. There was pain, tremendous sorrow, and a sense of loss. But there was also Jesus. We haven't eaten for three days, but that's okay because we have Jesus. We have Jesus. The second observation I want to point out to you from verse 32 is the thoughtful compassion that Jesus had on these men and women. As he looks out at this enormous crowd that has sought him out, he concerns himself. He didn't have to do this, guys. He takes it upon himself to take care of their pressing need. He's proactively compassionate. No one here is seen or recorded asking him for compassion. It's just what comes out of Jesus. He sees the need and compassion comes flowing out of him. Knowing they haven't eaten in a few days, he doesn't, he doesn't send them on their way just to pass out. He doesn't want them to faint on the way home because they're malnourished. He says, I am unwilling. The God and creator of the universe says, I am unwilling to send them away hungry. This is the proactive compassion of Christ that takes 
care of our every need, even when we don't ask? Have you thought about it? Have you thought about how every need you've ever had in your life up to this point has been taken care of? Where does that come from? The compassion of God. Jesus, full of compassion, is unwilling to have your needs go unmet. You say, hold on, pastor, I got a lot of needs, and there's a lot of suffering in my life. Well, listen, you might not see eye to eye with God about what your needs are, but the testimony of Scripture testifies to the compassion of Christ, and he is unwilling to let them go away hungry. Pastor, I'm not well. I've been suffering for a long time. Evidently, you need that. The starving belly can't be filled until it is empty. In the midst of your pain, in the midst of your trial, in the midst of your need, may you find what Phyllis and Byron have found. Love, the compassion of Christ. Verse 33. And the disciples said to him, where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? You're going to think that this is John 6 all over again. The feeding of 5,000, it's not. This is the feeding of the 4,000. Look at verse 34. Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over, those who ate are 4,000 men besides, or in addition, there are women and children. In other words, it's business as usual for Jesus. Now, I'm going to say something here that it might not be that striking to you, but it is striking. Have you noticed how we've seen Jesus day in and day out, Sunday after Sunday, constantly giving, helping, constantly ministering? You know, we often talk about Jesus laying down his life, giving his life to sinners. And when we say that, what usually comes to our minds is the cross. He 
laid down his life for the sheep. But I'm going to tell you, that's looking too narrow. The life of Jesus. Our life-changing look at Jesus, he has shown us, it has shown us that Jesus gives his life for sinners, not only on the cross, but every waking moment. This is our Savior. Spending his time, spending his energy, spending his resources, taking care of people like us, sinners, meeting the needs of sinners, healing sinners, feeding sinners, having compassion on sinners. So when we say that Jesus gave his life for sinners, it includes not only the hours that he spent nailed to the cross, it includes the hours, the days, the weeks, the years that he spent devoting his life to help us. In this text, Matthew 15, 29 and 38, we catch a glimpse of Jesus being Jesus. The amazing, remarkable, consistent, always there, never needing anything from us, free of charge, Jesus. Business as usual. Which brings us to verse 39 and to chapter 16 and to our second point. Our second point is simply called the total blindness of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Total blindness in short. He runs into some folks that are just completely blind. Verse 39, it says, after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadon. Magadon. Where is Magadon? If only I had a little handy map. <laughs> oh, wait, I do. Let me pull it out of my pocket. <laughs> so if he's up here in Bethsaida above your pinky, he comes over and he travels to a little place called Magadon, just north, just north of Tiberias and just south of Capernaum. And guess who shows up? The first one, and the Pharisees and the, and the Sadducees came. The religious leaders of Israel, of course, they show up. Jesus is out, back in town, being awesome, having compassion on the crowds, feeding the people, healing everyone, and here comes the religious leaders wanting to screw everything up. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. Apparently, hearing the mute who couldn't talk before, hearing them speak fluently isn't enough. Watching the people who were born lame and paralyzed run, it's not enough for them. Feeding thousands of people with a handful of breadsticks and sardines. It's, it's not enough. 
for them. These guys want to test Jesus. They want a sign from heaven. Evidently, they wanted a real doozy of a miracle. Meanwhile, their ignorance of Scripture betrays them. Isaiah 29, 18 says, In that day, what day? The day of the Messiah. In that day, the deaf shall hear and the eyes of the blind shall see. Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. And they sh then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Jesus is leaving a path awake full of signs behind him. The signs he's producing are literally everywhere. But these religious guys, these spiritual experts, are completely oblivious. That's why Jesus says what he says in verses 2 and 3. Verse 2, he answered them, when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather for the sky is red. He's acknowledging that they could look at the evening sky and have a pretty good guess of what the weather's going to be like for the next few hours. They could do the same thing with the morning skies. Look at verse 3. And in the morning, it will be stormy today for the sky is red and threatening. Then Jesus says, you know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot, you cannot interpret, you cannot see, you cannot discern the signs of the times. These men could not see what Jesus is spending his life doing, even though these signs are all around them. They cannot see the work of God. Can you? Do you see it? Do you see the fingerprints of God all around you? Do you see how his creation declares his glory? Do you, do you see the neon signs, the testimonies that he has left you everywhere? Do you see his glory and his beauty each morning as the sun rises and lights and warms and feeds the earth? Right now the sun's coming up right at the right time for my morning walk. And as I round the corner, here comes the glory of God shining forth. In a beautiful painting that can never be recreated, never captured. It's what inspires artists. It's there for a moment. You say, yes, there's a God. And there it's gone. 
Do you see the work of God? It's everywhere. Are you reminded of the invisible God resting assured that he is there when you feel the invisible wind upon your cheek? You do not see it, but you feel it. You know it. Can you hear the stars and the heavens as they declare the glory of God? Did the fresh blanket of snow that fell on us last night, did it remind you of his promise to wipe away sin and to make it white as snow? Does the sound of mighty rushing waters point you to his strong and powerful voice? When you look out and you see those glorious mountains to the south, do you see them pointing to him? The trees, they point you to him. Every green blade of grass that grows in your yard points you to him. Even our rooftops point us to heaven. You see, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they couldn't see the scenes, the signs that God put right before their eyes. Can you see them? They're everywhere to those who can see. Verse 4, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. He calls them evil and adulterous why are they evil? They're evil because they've turned away from God. God tells us in his word, I just read it while we were singing. I probably should have been singing. But Exodus 34, the first time he really reveals himself to mankind, fallen mankind. He says this about himself. He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God, merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping that steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. This is our God. The God who's merciful, abounding in grace, slow to anger, lavishing with unescapable, inescapable love, forgiving us. How do we know when a generation is evil, they turn from that God? Who in the world would turn from that God? How do you know when people have turned from God? They no longer reflect him and his glory. Gone is mercy from their life. Grace is scarce. Steadfast, unconditional, inescapable love. 
gone. Forgiveness, gone. God has such a God has a word for such a people. Evil. Evil. This generation is also called adulterous. It's again referring to their lip service that they give to God, but they give their bodies to sin. They're intimate with sin, not with God. Jesus says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it. Like we've seen Jesus do before, he does not give these people what they are asking for. We, of course, ask Jesus with our prayers. These guys had the privilege of asking Jesus face to face. What do they say? Jesus, give us a sign. Then we'll believe. I found myself wondering this week, what if, what if Jesus would have answered their prayer? What if, what if he would have given them what, he, what they asked for? What do you think these guys would have done if he gave them a sign, turn the sun purple, the sky silver. What would they have done if he made dogs speak like humans and made the Sadducees bark like dogs? What if he turned the Pharisees' skin into feathers and their arms into wings so they could fly? What do you think? Do you think this evil... An adulterous generation would have believed then? Did Pharaoh believe when he saw the miraculous signs in Exodus? Did walking through the Red Sea on dry ground as the waters walled up beside them make Israel obey and believe the Lord? Did his feeding them manna from heaven in the wilderness keep them from building a golden calf? Did David miraculously winning that victory over Goliath keep him from committing adultery and killing the woman's husband? What do you think? Do you think a purple sun or talking dogs or flying Pharisees would have worked? Let me tell you the one thing that works. The sign of Jonah. No sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. What in the world is the sign of Jonah. Well, Jonah, the Old Testament prophet, he's good as dead. He's swallowed up by the sea and then he's swallowed up by the great fish, spit out three days later. Why? 
so he could go and save his enemies. How does Jesus give these guys the sign of Jonah? By being swallowed by death on a cross, dead for three days before he spit out of the grave by resurrection. Why? So he could save his enemies. You want a sign? It won't work. The only thing that works, the only thing that has the power to make you believe and transform you is the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. This man who's perfect, oozing with love, overflowing with compassion, meeting everyone's needs, filling their bellies, killed like a criminal on the cross. Innocence, dying for the guilty. Why? So we don't have to. So that evil and adulterous, adulterous Pharisees like me can have hope that I can be right with God. And it's that very hope of Christ, the perfect Christ, dying, being buried in the grave for three days, raising from the dead. It is that very hope that Stephanie Bothman now understands is in hope, but is a promise. Her faith is sight. The only thing that can save a Pharisee is the only thing that can save Stephanie. And it's the only thing that can save you and I. And it's the cross of Christ. For it is the power of God for salvation. So here we find Jesus once again. Business as usual, meeting our needs, pointing us to himself. So may we see and behold this glorious Christ, the one who is truly better than everything in every way. Let's pray. Father, we couldn't imagine a better Savior than Jesus. The way that he has disclosed himself, revealed himself, who he is in Scripture, it's, well, it's almost unbelievable. To see his compassion, to know his love, To see, to see him give Pharisees, Sadducees, like me, 
hope in the gospel. What love, my God. Thank you for revealing. Thank you for showing us the God who is Christ, Jesus our Lord. May we spend our lives trusting, knowing, praising our great Savior. Amen.